Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we'll be discussing how we can make real change in the world to a more just, humane, and democratic future. I'm joined today by our guest, Jeevana Heyman. Jeevana is the author of two books, Accessible Yoga, Poses and Practices for Everybody, and Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Jivana is the founder and director of the Accessible Yoga Association, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing access to the yoga teachings. He's also the co-founder of the Accessible Yoga School, an online portal focusing on equity and accessibility. He's also the co-host of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. You can find out more information at his website, jivanahayman.com, and that's J-I-V-A-N-A, Jivana. Heyman is H-E-Y-M-A-N, jivanaheyman.com. He's also on Facebook at Jivana Heyman. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Jivana Heyman. I'm so delighted that you could join me today on the show. Thanks, Laurel. It's great to be back. I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. A second time. (laughs) (laughs) Before we uh, dive into our dialogue about how we can make real change in the world, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. So let's begin with just bringing our attention into this moment, letting go of anything that happened earlier today, any concerns about what might happen later on, and just being here right now, bringing our attention to our bodies, feeling our bodies in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're walking or sitting, driving, just feeling our body in space, and in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight. And then bringing the attention to the breath, wonderful tool that's always with us, just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. Continuing to focus on our breathing, here's something to contemplate. A teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Seeing the one life in all is recognizing the body of God. As our own body has different parts, but belongs to one organism, so with spiritual vision, we see everyone and everything as one interconnected life. The tiniest insect, the majestic mountains, our beloved family members, the billions of souls living on this earth we have never met, and even those beyond, all the body of God. The holy temple is everywhere. Once again, Jeevana Heyman, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. As you mentioned, you have been on before. The last time we talked about your earlier book, Accessible Yoga, and that was actually a really good episode. We're going to post a link back to that uh, program on our website. And today I'm pleased to have you join me to discuss your newer book, uh, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. So let's start with what inspired you to write this book on Yoga Revolution now? Well, that's a good question. I I think that this book 
has, it's something I've been working on for a very long time, actually. I mean, this is really the heart of what I teach. And um, most people think of my work in accessible yoga as just adapting poses, but really my, my interest and my goal is to look at how we can kind of unearth the essential truths of the practice and share them more widely. And to kind of, my, my goal is to try to make complicated ideas more simple and accessible. And, and I think I did that in the first book through more of the physical practice. I was looking a lot at that, adapting poses, but I really wanted to go deeper. And so that's what this book really is, just going deeper into yoga teachings and philosophy and, and how to, and I guess in my words, how to, how to live yoga, you know, how to not just study, but actually practice mm -hmm. off the mat. Yes, so, yes, yeah. absolutely. The introduction to your book begins, modern yoga is finally growing up and the time has come to address the dissonance between the superficial way yoga is currently being practiced and the depth of yoga's ancient universal spiritual teachings. And I must say, I really love that quote. I thought it was really beautifully said, and it really captures one of the goals of this program, the Yoga Hour, as I said in the intro, really exploring the depth and breadth of yoga, just for people to realize there's so much more there than stretching or than a physical fitness, <laughs> physical yeah. fitness routine. Um, your book, the title of your book is Yoga Revolution. So how do you see yoga as revolutionary? Well, I like how you asked that because that's what I'm trying to say is I'm not saying that we should have a yoga revolution or yoga should be revolutionized, but that actually yoga itself is revolutionary. Exactly. And I think, I think in two main ways, and that's really, I mean, at the heart of the book, um, there's kind of two main focuses. One is kind of the inner, the inner work that we do yeah. based on these teachings. And that, you know, in my experience personally, yoga has really transformed my relationship with myself. And, and I think that's revolutionary because I think that we really struggle. I mean, all of us struggle with that, you know, um, with just the challenges of life, but also how we respond to them. You know, what is our inner work that we're doing and how can yoga support us? And then the second piece is really how, and actually that quote, well, a quote you led during that centering practice by um, Ellen Grace O'Brien. I mean, that's exactly summarizes what I'm really trying to get at in terms of the second, what I call outer revolution aspect of yoga, which is, yoga off the mat in practice like how do we treat others right as an aspect of our practice seeing like you said like or the quote you read seeing god and others basically is yoga to me and at the heart of the practice and then that changes the way i interact with people and the way i live in the world it changes the way i vote how i spend my money mm -hmm. um the, the work that i do the causes i support Mm -hmm. and, and I would say personally, social justice issues in particular, because I yeah. feel like it's actually the most marginalized of us, including myself as a queer person, you know, that has struggled with that. Like, if we could just do that, if all the yoga practitioners and spiritual practitioners in the world kind of had that view, you know, of seeing God in everyone, it would just, I think it would immediately change our world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally agree with you. And I chose that quote because um, it did remind me of what you were talking yeah. about in the book. And it's really about how do we live that oneness? We can have a, we can have a, a uh, experience in meditation. <clears throat> we can have <clears throat> that experience of uh, transcendent um, kind of joy and possibility. Many places in our lives, I think everyone has had those sort of peak experiences where you're mm -hmm. seeing something in nature that's particularly beautiful, or you're with a baby, you know, for the first time, or all these different things that might, you know, trigger that feeling of, of oneness. And really, if, if all you're doing is having that experience on the mat in meditation, then, you know, kind of what good is it? And at a certain point, what is left is service. What is left, you know, is, is, serving, yeah. is serving the one and all. And I feel like your book really does a good job yeah. about talking. Thank about you. So. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I mean, you said it beautifully. And I, I think it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I struggle with it all the time. But that's my goal. You know, practice. Practice is just that. It's practice. It's like you do your personal practice, which is essential, so that then you can actually be kind and be of service and love others. I mean, that's that's yoga to me, is loving other people. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's been lost a bit. You know, we, we focus not only on the physical, but we focus so much on the internal benefits. And, and it's interesting. There's even some research that shows that well, at least with mindfulness, there's been some research that shows that, that mindfulness tends to just 
kind of exaggerate whatever's happened in your mind anyway. And that taken out of context, like, so if you take, for example, you take mindfulness and practice in kind of a more neutral, westernized way without the context of like the ethical teachings of Buddhism, then there is danger there that it might actually cause some problems. Like I said, in that it exacerbates what's happening. So if you tend to be a selfish person, it makes you more selfish. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the mindfulness itself isn't enough. You know, the yoga itself isn't enough. There has to be the fullness of the practice. I mean, the yoga is enough, but it's like maybe the Western view of it, yes. that limited practice. Right. It's That's just the like the first step. You know? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You subtitled your book, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. So I wanted to take a moment to ask about the importance of those two traits, courage and compassion. And, you know, what is it about those two that made you choose them as important in expanding our yoga practice off the mat and into our lives? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think they reflect those two aspects that I'm trying to speak to this inner work, which that's what it takes courage to do. I mean, that that is really the hard part. Like to look at yourself honestly in meditation. Um, to be able to, and I don't mean in a cruel way, but I just mean in an honest, sincere, reflective way, to notice your your ego's tendencies and kind of where you where you might be. Uh, I don't know, stuck. And so I, I could go into that more if you want, but that, that focus of courage is like that courageous um, honesty, you know, that courageous ability to, to truly see who you are. And then the compassion is the way you act in the world. That's the outer part to me. It's like compassion is literally seeing others in a loving way, um, seeing yourself and others, like that beautiful quote you share. So that's the compassion is like, that's how you then practice out off the mat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to touch on because it really resonated with me is that you wrote that COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic has been your second pandemic. Yeah. And I also lived through the AIDS epidemic slash pandemic uh, as part of my medical training. So I was in medical school starting in 1984. Mm. So 84 to 88, I was in medical school at UC San Francisco. And then um, for three years, I was in residency. So until 91, and then my early practice, I took care of a lot of uh, AIDS of AIDS patients. And so wow. I just wanted to ask you about that, about how has that experience of that first pandemic affected you as we've gone through now, we're into our you know second year or third, beginning of our third year of this. Um, of this and, and what kind of doctor are you, just a general? Yes, I'm general internal, wow. general internal medicine. So I was doing, and the, and the place that I was working after I finished residency, the prime, the, they really believed in having primary care docs take care of AIDS patients. So I had a lot of AIDS patients in my practice, and um, and it was, I mean, it was, you know, I I don't know about you, but I kind of shuddered, you know, when we were having the uh, early days of this pandemic and there were, I was seeing all of these doctors in Italy in the in the emergency rooms that were so overwhelmed and in New York yeah. City, the same thing. And um, it, it did give me kind of negative flashbacks about, oh, yeah. about the prior, you know, about my prior experience. Definitely. I was definitely, I, I, I was definitely triggered. I mean, it was like my trauma from, yeah, all that death and illness had, had triggered me. And I, I mean, my experience was, different, I mean, from the other side and that, you know, I was like a young gay man and just come out and then all the people I was meeting, all of my new friends and boyfriends, you know, well, not all, but almost all of them were getting sick and dying. And it was, you know, so much loss in a short period of time. I mean, I, I can think of probably 20 people who died within five years, you know, including my best friend who died. And I, I think, I don't know. There's so much to say about AIDS. I, I think that um, it was an amazing opportunity for me, like actually in it, in it, to really go deep into my personal spiritual practice because I was really struggling and suffering. And that, that's the thing about pain and suffering is that pain and suffering offer an opportunity to go deep and to reflect right. and to do that work that I talked about, right? It takes, it's the courage to actually like be to, to suffer, right? To suffer and not just redirect your attention um, and to sit with that suffering. And so 
I don't know, I really questioned reality and like what's going on and how, you know, and I was very young, but it was just like I was dealing with death when most people hadn't been. And then, right. yeah, in COVID, I felt like it was happening again. Like, but the thing about COVID is, I think I think the difference was that it wasn't impacting just one community in the first in the beginning, and it felt more universal. And I know in the long run, it has impacted many individual communities more than others. Um, which you know, of course, more marginalized communities are highly have a higher impact from COVID, but still it feels more universal that the kind of early years of AIDS was just gay men. I mean, it, it eventually expanded, but it was like such a specific focus and it felt like the government was ignoring that and like purposefully ignoring it. And there was so much anger associated, you know, with that, but not only was the, the emotions of the struggle itself and the pain of dealing with illness and death, but then the frustration of the lack of response and care, and so that's what really stimulated me to become an activist. And I, and I spent years and years as an AIDS activist trying to speak out for my community. And, and then yoga became um, really a, a sanctuary for me. Like I had actually learned yoga as a child from my grandmother. But um, I Oh, I love those yoga. stories in your book. I yeah. loved reading about how you'd come into the room and your grandmother would be in a headstand. And I just yeah. thought, oh, my gosh, that is amazing. Yeah, she was amazing. She was living in LA in the 60s and, you know, was exposed to a lot of that early on. I mean, probably even in the late 50s, she was already practicing, honestly. There's some yoga going on in, in LA around that time. It was, you know, she was an early practitioner and very dedicated um, spiritual seeker. And she studied with Swami Satchidananda, who became my teacher. Oh. And she also studied with Krishnamurti, Jay Krishnamurti, and who I adore. So I just feel like she, you know, she was just always focused on that. I was always her passion and, and she inspired me. Like when I was really struggling, um, you know, she had told me the practice actually. Um, and then she passed away around that same time. But it was, um, yeah, definitely she put something in me. You know, she, she planted the seed. <laughs> yeah, that's so, that's so cool and very unusual. <clears throat> very yeah. unusual, you know, to have a family like that. So that's really a blessing. Yeah. Um, as you um, have already mentioned, I think uh, one of the things that you write is I don't just want to study yoga, I want to live yoga. And <clears throat> so the first part of your book, the first section is about inner revolution. And the second part is about outer revolution. Um, and, <clears throat> and one of the things that you point to is the importance of self compassion as a critical yeah. early, early practice. So I want to ask about that. Why is self-compassion so important, do you think? I think that's really important to talk about because I think, I think there's a kind of uh, paradox here in that when what I see in, in myself and in my students is that the most sensitive people, the most, who are often the most willing to look inside, are often the most self-critical. So it kind of, there's something about maybe like a personality or like a certain way our minds work that those who are willing to do the work are often the most self-critical. Mm -hmm. And it's the people, I find people who seem more um, kind of stubborn and sure of themselves that are less willing to do the work and less self-critical to begin with. So I don't know, I'm just, I'm generalizing, but yeah, yeah. I just, let's just say that I noticed a trend in my students that um, they're just being so hard on themselves and that's not the point, you know? Yeah. I think we need to be honest, mm -hmm. but with kind of a loving, compassionate perspective, right. which is that, you know, here we are. It's like, there's no point in berating yourself for having an ego or for thinking of your own selfish needs. That's just the way the human mind works. So I, I just feel like we could skip over a lot of the challenges that come that I see people go through of this like self-critical phase of growth. If we just kind of, you know, realize this is human nature, right? It's human nature to care for yourself and care for your family, um, to, ha to be selfish. Like that's, that's just part of who we are. But I think to admit to it and see it clearly without getting stuck there, like in an I'm so terrible, per I'm a terrible person, right. you know, that stuff, that doesn't help. That, that to me, um, or I'm not worthy of love. I don't. I don't matter. Nothing I do matters. Or, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like 
some of the most incredible people I know don't get activated in the world, don't actually go and do anything because they're stuck in that right. self-doubt. Right. And it could be more than that. It could be depression. It could be like, it could be a diagnosed disorder. And I'm not saying it's not serious, yeah. but I just want to like push people beyond like, you know, you're amazing. Like you have so much love in your heart. Like yeah. share that with the world is kind of where okay. I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> What's interesting, and, and I've heard uh, my teacher, Alan Grace O'Brien, talk about this, but when we first start to study, particularly the yamas and the niyamas, and we look yeah. at harmlessness, you know, in 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 word, in thought, you know, yeah. and, and in deed, then, um, you know, a lot of people feel worse about themselves <laughs> when, they, yeah. when they first you know, when they first come to it, I mean, it's, it's a way of feeling like even more terrible, you know, <laughs> about, yep. about yourself because you're seeing <clears throat> your actions in a new, in a new light. So right. I, I agree with you. I think it's a super, a super important practice of yeah. self-compassion. And then the other thing that I've seen is, is um, somehow for me, it's easier to be not attached to the positive qualities that I have somehow, you know, to like, catch myself in pride or whatever, but to then to not see the the attachment that lies behind being so self-critical, right? I mean, it's a, it's just another attachment, but it's on the negative side. It's like you're attached yeah. to this negative view of yourself and you can't really give yourself a break. Yes. Uh, I also think one of the things I see a lot, and I, and I see this in myself, is giving up on it, on, our, on myself. Like, I, I don't know how to say it. Like, in the beginning, usually when people start spiritual practice, they have a lot of energy and interest and you can make big strides, but eventually they kind of plateau and it's like, wait, you know, what, what's going on there? And I think part of it is, it's like, we, we see that, well, there's a goal far away and we think, oh, I'm going, I need to be over there rather than just realizing, well, you're right where you need to be right now and you have all the challenges you need in your life that you can address right now like everything you need to do your spiritual work is here for you right but we don't see that we don't see it that way we have some you know we have big expectations about some other way of being or some other practice and we kind of give up so it's just like a way i think part of it is the mind being very tricky and kind of having us give up quickly without really pushing ourselves further and it reminds me it reminds me of, of social justice issues too like i see a lot of people who care about other people who care about the environment, for example, but don't do anything about improving it or speaking up because they think, Oh, nothing I do really matters. You know, they, they kind of like, what is that called? You know, we just like think, uh, I feel powerless, helplessness, yeah. helplessness and, and discouragement. And I just feel like often that comes from a sense of self doubt and a lack of confidence actually mm -hmm. that, that is hard. It's hard. How do you find the balance of confidence and humility, you know, to do this work? There, there is a, there's a real challenge there. It's like a razor's, razor's edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just mentioned the yamas and niyamas. So the yamas oh. are the first step of the eight limbs of yoga that are found in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And they provide guidelines for ethical values or right living. And you talk about how living the yamas, living these ethical principles could, and this is a quote, undo centuries of harm and create an environment that is ripe for racial and social reconciliation. Yeah. What you said earlier, it's like if people really live the teachings, there's just such a huge possibility uh, for, for us individually and for, and for our world. So let's talk about the first of the, of the yamas, uh, ahimsa, um, which has, which you can translate a lot of different ways, but nonviolence, it was Gandhi's, you know, prime principle, um, compassion, kindness. These are all ways that I've seen Ahimsa translate. What, what, how do you see Ahimsa in terms of both the inner and then an outer, the outer revolution? Yeah. Well, you're making me think of one other thing, which is just to clarify that, um, you know, when we spoke earlier about oneness, right? And like that beautiful quote you read, I think it's easy to, to get stuck in an either or situation mm -hmm. in a binary that it's like either we're seeing everyone as one or we're seeing difference. And the fact is the work of spiritual life is to have both, yeah. <laughs> to have both simultaneously. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to say is that 
the oneness is real, but the difference is real too. And our lived experiences are important and valuable. And I think sometimes in yoga or in spirituality, we don't talk enough about that, valuing the suffering and the challenges that individuals have and not always going to like saying, oh, it's your karma. And so kind of dismissing it. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like there's often a, a focus on just the oneness and a dismissal of people's suffering. And so I guess I just want to say that people's lived experience is valuable, that I don't believe, I don't think we conceive of karma correctly. I think it's way more complex and that we're not individually responsible all the time, like mm-hmm. for homophobia or racism or the feeling, you know, the actual oppression you're experiencing as an individual. And I think because of that, we actually turn people away from spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like a spiritual bypassing that happens of people's actual suffering <laughs> right. Right, in the world. Yeah. So I guess going back to Ahimsa, I think one of my personal practices of Ahimsa is to recognize the fact that other people are suffering. And so I, I feel like that's why I wanted to say that. It's like, to me, it's actually harmful to teach spirituality in a way that ignores that suffering. Right, right. Yeah, no, when you were talking, I was really thinking of that term spiritual bypassing, yeah. which for listeners who aren't familiar with that, I think it's something, it's a term that's being used more and more, in, at least in my reading. This is this way of just kind of minimizing whatever's going on and just saying, oh, you know, it's kind of all roses and we're all one and, oh, you know, don't get don't get hung up on that. Um, but I like the way that you write about it and the way you just described it, which is holding both. You know, yes, we are we are one. There's absolutely a reality about that. And that doesn't minimize that there are different paths of suffering that different people and different groups go through. Um, I mean. You know, I, um, I, my heart goes out to the people in Ukraine right now. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a tremendous example. It's like we can yeah. all be supported from a distance, but it's not our neighborhood that's being bombed. You know, it's not our neighbors that are being killed um, in a very, you know, in a very real way. You know, see that suffering. It's like that's up close uh, for, you know, for them. Right. But even closer to home, I think about, you know, recently shooting, shootings in Buffalo and, yes. and race, yeah. racial hatred and white supremacy that, you know, I feel like it is part of our culture. And, and so I, I think that, that, like you explained it well, spiritual bypassing is kind of dismissing suffering. And it's, to me, it, it allows for whiteness to be spiritual <laughs> because it doesn't create space for the, the suffering that whiteness has created in the world, you know, through many different forms, colonization and racism, and then many aspects uh, that are underneath white supremacy, I think of like homophobia and ageism and ableism. And there's just so many aspects, all these that, and it's not like one, it's not like a white person is responsible for that individually. I just mean that as a um, kind of culture, this is something that has been created that we're living with, right? Right. Absolutely. And even if we look at the yoga community, which, you know, what you talk about, I mean, talk about something that's been, you know, uh, um, commercialized and used in the service of capitalism to yes. sell things. Even even these beautiful yoga teachings. Now, you, you'll see a, a commercial for a car. You know, and it's yeah. it's your nirvana. You know, it's your it's your bliss. You know, to have this like SUV uh-huh. out riding through the you know some yeah. open land somewhere. <laughs> so you go and, and then I'll tell someone doing a yoga pose. You know, like it's <laughs> like yeah. But it, it, it's all connected. I mean, there is a way that the teachings have been used and, and uh, abused, I would say, and misused. Um, and to me, that's very harmful. So, I mean, to me, Ahimsa is recognizing that, recognizing the, the damage that's been done in the, name of, in the name of yoga and spirituality, actually, in the name of, you know, in my own teaching and the way that I understand the teachings, really trying to clarify that and just you know accept that there is there is a very different reality out there that people are experiencing people have a very different lived experience than i do if they have you know their different race or class or religion or from another country like in ukraine right now for example so i mean that that's part of ahimsa to me it's just um well to be honest what i love about gandhi actually mentioned gandhi and his focus on ahimsa he he connected it directly to the next one, to Satya. He, he basically put them together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's so interesting because truthfulness, he, what he basically was saying is that 
if it's harmful, it's not true. Mm. And okay. and his um, Satyagraha, his like move, love movement was actually truth movement. It was actually the the the, the power of truth and. So like speaking truth has this incredible power. And even in our own minds, like just being honest with ourselves mm -hmm. um, is a way to avoid causing harm. It's when we lie to ourselves yeah. um, and then to others. I believe that's when the harm has come, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would just say that that to follow, to kind of finish this thought is that our understanding of that, or at least I can say it personally, my understanding, you know, of harm of harmlessness, my understanding yeah. of truthfulness continues to evolve. I feel like that's one of the ever, you know, ever present gifts of, of the study of yoga, the deep study of yoga is, you know, you see harm and truth in, in a different way, you know, as, as you go along, which always means that there's something that you need to have compassion for yourself about, because there's a new way that you realize that, you know, you haven't been living in, a, in alignment with, with truth, or you haven't been living alignment with oneness. You haven't been living, truly living ahimsa in all these different ways, but let me stop there. As a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, The Yoga Hour Podcast. And today I'm here with Jeevan Heyman, author of the book we're discussing today, Yoga Revolution, and director and founder of Accessible Yoga Association. You can find out more about Jeevana and his programs at his website, jeevanaheyman.com. And again, J-I-V-A-N-A-H-E-Y-M-A-N jeevanaheyman.com and on he's on facebook at jeevanaheyman we'll also have these links on our website theyogahour.com if you would like to be in touch with us that's the way to do it through our website we welcome your comments and questions you can also sign up for our mailing list at theyogahour.com so um let me come back around um you ask a question in the book that i thought it would be fun to ask you um if the first rule of yoga, ahimsa, is engaged love, then what is the goal of yoga? Yeah. I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> what is the goal of yoga? I mean, that's, that's really, well, I would say that's the other underlying theme in this book for me. And the question that I'm continually exploring in my own practice, there's, sure, there's like my inner exploration and then there's my outer work in the world but all along to me there's this question that kind of hovers over me about what is the goal and, and is the goal enlightenment because traditionally that's what we're told we're told that you know in the yoga sutras uh which were written about you know 1700 years ago we're told that this was written for um monks who had left the world and they basically are just dedicated to their spiritual life um and probably are living in a cave, you know, alone, separate from the world. And I, I'm just stuck on that concept a little bit because I feel that, well, first of all, I'll just say that yoga is very complex and there's more than one tradition. There's many yoga traditions. And so that's one, that's like one kind of line through that you can find is the sutras. There's also the Gita, which tells a very different story about an engaged way of being in the world, right? Of doing your work, right? Of karma and service. And there's others, there's many other paths. I mean, there's the path of the householder and that's a really important tradition in yoga as well. And I feel like that to me, there's a different story there. If, if, you're, if you have a path of a householder, then what is the goal of your practice? Is your goal then personal enlightenment where you leave the world, sit in a cave and become enlightened. I mean, probably what it, you know, traditionally, if someone's listening, they're probably telling, they're probably thinking, no, what you do is you do one and then the other, right? Like traditionally, um, you would have your family life. And then when you're done with that, both spouses would separate and become monastics. That's one way to think, oh, you do it all. But I'm just saying as a householder, I mean, my husband and I have two adopted kids. I would just say that my experience has been very different, that yoga is very much an engaged practice. Right. And also it's about not only loving other people, but how do I, um, how do I care for them in a way that, that allows for us to both be free? And I try, I, I quote a few different people on that idea. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is her, you know, Reverend Angel uh, Komodo Williams is a great 
teacher on this topic of like, you know, through my freedom, I free you. But I feel like there's a community aspect. There's a consideration of the other that I feel like is lost often in the yoga teachings that are very like individual self-focused. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. And I don't know if that is answering your question. Well, I I feel like we are really lucky in in my particular tradition because we have both householders and uh, and monastics as part of um, um, our tradition is through the Yogananda lineage, you know, so Lahiri Mahasaya, who was the one who kind of rebirthed, you know, these, uh, these teachings of Kriya Yoga. Um, he was very, in one of the first things that he asked, um, his teacher, uh, who was by, you know, by, uh, um, what was written in the autobiography of a yogi, his teacher was Babaji. So, you know, he really wanted to show them with everybody, with seeking souls everywhere and including women, which in this is like in the 1860s. So that was really, that was really unusual. And then after he had his enlightenment experience with Babaji, he came back and he and his wife had five children. <laughs> you know? so, so he really, you know, he really lived, you know, the householder, the householder life. So anyway, I feel lucky. I feel lucky about that. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, and I also feel like it's also kind of woven through Yogananda's teachings and his experience with Ray Eugene Davis, who was also a householder and, and in our tradition, one of the very first things um, that that Yogananda told him is you realize that this is not a selfish path, um, that it's, you know, that in other words, it's not just for you. And that was literally Roy's like 18 years old. He's meeting Yogananda for the first time and, and individual meeting for the first time. And that was like the first thing that he said, I believe, was wow. you realize this isn't a selfish path, you know. So anyway, um, but, you know, I, I totally see, you know, where you're going. And I also think it speaks to spiritual bypassing, you know, of just going off in a cave, you know, someplace and not trying to live the teachings. Yeah. You, one of the things you talk about in the book is you talk about um about the three practices of Kriya Yoga in a, in a, in a very grounded way. You give a really, really grounded example, which is on page 112 of tapas, uh, of self-discipline, svadhyaya, self-study, and uh, Ishvara Pranidhan, uh, devotion or, and surrender. But you talk about them in a very grounded way. And I thought that was a great example. So would you go through that for our... Yeah, sure. I, I kind of just want to add one more thought to the other... Sure topic around what is the goal of the practice and i would say i i feel like it's also very exclusive to think of the goal of yoga as a particular form of enlightenment rather than to look around me and i see so many people that are incredibly loving and kind and service oriented and i feel like to me they're enlightened and especially like you're in the medical profession or you were at least and i have to say like i see so many incredible service-oriented people. Yeah. The, the few times I've been in the hospital, I remember um, that feeling of being cared for. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. You know, and so, and I see it around me all the time. I mean, so many people, a lot of yoga teachers um, are, have, have that heart. And so I guess I feel like that's it. Like, that's what we need to be focused on, right? Not some transcendental experience, but actually living that right now. Like, how do I get to be more like that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. O- only in the way that um, if you think that there's this transcendental, transcendental experience that's not available to everyone, yeah. um, and that it's impossible for you, that can also be a barrier, you know, in and of itself. But exactly. kind of like what you said earlier, I sort of see two tracks. It's like we have to do our yeah. own practice. And yeah. so there's absolutely nothing wrong with pursuing as much yeah. enlightenment as you can get on the mat. But if that's right. as far as it goes, then where's the revolution? I mean, if it doesn't, I would argue that it's not even an inner revolution if it's only on the mat, if it's no. only on the, if it's only on the meditation cushion, if that's all you're experiencing, then that's not really, that's not really enlightenment. You know, right. if you really see it and live it. Then that's that to me, that's, that's, uh, that's an enlightened person. And I loved your examples. If there's so many people out there who are following that, that um, selfless service uh, path yeah. of, of yoga, which is one of the paths of yoga, you know, is just uh, selfless service. So exactly. Anyway, so going back to Kriya Yoga, I mean, I, I just find myself reflecting on that particular sutra a lot. That's sutra one in the book two in the second chapter of the yoga sutras like and you describe the three aspects of it and i i think it's interesting if you look at the sutras in general how this whole second chapter is on how to practice is, is the you know um sadhana pada and he's basically describing how to do how to do the thing you know and the thing is that he's already described is basically how to work with your mind right how to how to 
Um, really what he gets at is how to discriminate, uh, and I mean in a positive way, like discriminate and see clearly between what part of you is, is spirit, eternal, and unchanging, right? And what part of you is constantly changing right. and temporary, the body and mind. And, right. and that's really what the sutras are all about, is being to see that clearly. This is where he begins that argument, actually. And um, he says, I mean, he basically starts with that word uh, tapas, which is like, you know, pain and suffering it goes back to that again. Mm-hmm. And to just the acknowledgement of the importance of our suffering. And I would almost say for me, it becomes like something to cherish and and it transforms my relationship with my suffering when I see it as valuable and valuable. And I'm talking about in my spiritual growth, Mm -hmm. what, what Patanjali is, I think saying is that if you are willing to sit with the suffering and reflect on it, well, reflect then is the Svadhyaya, but sit with it and acknowledge, oh, wait, I'm suffering right now. Here's an opportunity for yoga. Um, I feel like it changes my relationship to that suffering immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Swadhyaya, he's saying, reflect on it. Like, why? Why are you suffering? You know, like, what is it that has caused that suffering? And often, I mean, according to his teachings, it's an attachment. Like, we're attached to something. We, and, and, the, and that means there's something outside of ourselves that we believe will bring us happiness. Right. When happiness arises from connection with our own truth right happiness arises and joy maybe is a better word joy arises from or peace from connecting with our spirit with the truth of who we are when we're experiencing satya right on the honesty of oh i am that it's these other times as he described it where we're actually no i'm attached to having a certain amount of money or a position or a relationship or being seen in a particular way or having power over somebody which is just human nature to want those things, right? But when we realize that they're actually, those are act- the desire for them is actually causing the problems. That's actually, it's the desire for something outside of yourself right. that causes the suffering, um, according to his teachings. And so then you can sit with it. And then he says, you know, Ishvara Pranidana is just surrendering to the truth of who you are, realizing, wait, I already have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am that. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I want to say all of that in the context of real suffering that people go through. I know it can be very hard to translate that to like racism, you know, but I'm happy to do that. Like, I would be happy to have that conversation. Like, how can you take real world suffering that you have not even caused right. um, and transform it? And I actually think that you can internally, and many brilliant people have, and it actually can give you back your power. Yeah. You know, it, it's actually a power um, issue because sometimes if you feel, if you identify in the role of victim, you don't have the personal agency to change yourself, to change your, your relationship to that situation. Do you know what I mean? So like if you've been victimized, right? and so many of us have been victimized. Yeah. Which then puts you in that, yeah. that powerless, you know, helpless position that we were yeah. talking about, which is not a position where you can go forth and, and then make, you know, make a change. Right. <clears throat> so but speaking you, of that, but, go ahead. Can I just say one thing that it's not to diminish the fact that it happens either. Right. You know what I mean? So like, that's all. Yeah. 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 Not bypassing. We're not talking about bypassing, <laughs> but, but re, it's a reframing, you know, it's a reframing of, exactly. you know, of, of, tr- of truth, the biggest truth, the, the truth with a capital yeah. T, you know, the unchanging yeah. truth um, that can be empowering, you know, as we, as we move forward through whatever suffering, you know, is, is happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things I appreciated about the book, uh, Yoga Revolution, is that you give um, clear examples of some people today who are taking yoga into action in terms of uh, forms of uh, uh, social justice in particular. Um, and we've had the privilege of uh, interviewing several of the people that you mentioned, which was really fun for us then to read the book. Um, for example, we've had uh, Michelle Cassandra Johnson was on recently. Uh, Kamala Itzel Hayward was on uh, mm. last year, I think. Wow. Susanna Barkataki also last year. And then coming next month, we're having Olivia, uh, Octavia Rahim is wow. coming at the end of July. That's an amazing group. Like, Yay! <laughs> That's an amazing um, group. Yeah, yeah. I, I have. Yeah. We're going to uh, provide links to these episodes when we post this conversation on our website so people can find them easily. Um, so 
Can you give some of those examples? Because I, I did find that it was hopeful to witness some of the things that are going on today uh, in today's world where people are taking yoga off the mat and, and really making it, um, well, examples of that outer revolution that you're talking about. I mean, I, I actually think it's, it's part of my practice. It's a big part of my practice to find community, build community, and also to acknowledge those that are there. And I, and I really wanted to do that in this book. I didn't want this to be my story. I want it to be a, my, my experience of what's going on and how I'm living these teachings or trying to, and then also all the people that are inspiring me. And this is just really a short list. I mean, that, that, I don't know how many of them I have, like 16, I think, or something, um, people that contribute to the book. I have a photo of them and a quote. Um, I also had a podcast series I did just with them, the Yoga Revolution podcast. If people are interested, I did I interviewed all of the contributors so that people could find out more about their work because I love them so much. And, and there's so many other people out there too. And I would say it just reminds me of like, you know, when you, when you feel stuck or like things are really bad. <laughs> One of, I think, wasn't Mr. Rogers who said, look for the helpers when there's a problem? You know, it's like, I feel like it's that kind of thing. And it sounds overly simplistic, but it's true. Like, if you feel like you're really stuck and things look really bad to you, it's like, find community, you know, find the people that are doing the work and they're out there. And the other thing is, I actually think it's a kind of, and I hate to say, like another aspect of maybe white supremacist culture is focused on the individual, that it's up to us individually to do these things. And that's just not true. I think what's up to us is to clear our minds enough to see clearly and realize, wait, there are people all over the world who care, mm. who are doing incredible work. We all, you know, we can, I could criticize the yoga world endlessly, but the fact is most of the people in the yoga world are amazing. Mm -hmm. Most yoga teachers are incredible people and most of them really want to do the right thing. And there are some amazing leaders, some of whom are in the book as contributors and others I didn't get a chance to include who are showing us how to address issues like, um, you know, racism within yoga and in general with our culture or cultural appropriation, which is a huge issue for yoga because here's a practice from um, an indigenous culture of, um, from India and potentially connections to Africa, which I didn't get to explore in a book, but I mean, I'm reading more about that. There's just so much, um, there's so many problems with the way that we're, uh, dealing with yoga today and addressing it. And I don't think we have to solve them ourselves is what I'm trying to say. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's not really true. <clears throat> the idea about yeah. the self-made man, I, I uh, remember yeah. a, a Thich Nhat Hanh example, and I forget what he, cause something like interconnected or something, but it, it, you know, I, I believe the teaching was he held up a piece of paper, you know, and then he talked about like everyone who had contributed to that piece of paper, the yeah. simple thing, you know, this piece of paper, how many people it had taken to get this piece of paper that he was holding in his hand, you know, yeah. as just an example of the interconnectedness. That is that is the truth, that right. it isn't the truth that we can all just go out and do it ourselves. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that and, we rely and, so much on, on on so many people who have come before us. I mean, the fact that I'm here talking to you today is a testament to that, because I know that I really, I really focus on building community. And I my my the nonprofit Accessible Yoga Association is dedicated to uplifting voices that usually don't have a platform. That's how we started. Mm -hmm. And that's my goal. And that's my practice is to create, to use my own personal um, access to anything, like the access that I now have in the yoga world, um, the privileges that I have as a white person and as a man. Like, I feel like I have a lot of power and I, I mean, not a lot, but I have like power within this world to make change. And I'm trying to do everything I can to do that, to create space for others who don't have that access, who don't have power. And I feel like that's the thing. It's not that it's not that it's bad that I have that. It's not that it's bad that I'm who I am. I just have to learn how to use my personal resources for good. And the way to do that is through serving others. Yeah. And that's often through community. So I think we sometimes get stuck on the idea of service. And I'll just say, by the way, it's not complicated. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's about how you treat your, your partner and your family and also your friends and your peers, you know, your, the people around you. Well, unbelievably, 
We have pretty much come to the end of our time. Okay. We have a couple minutes left. And I, we always like to ask this question at the end because we like to end on a positive note. So in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Oh my gosh, I hope, I really hope that this whole thing was encouraging because that's my goal. My goal is to, is to support people in realizing that um, they have we all have amazing potential and that you know if we all if all of us doing this work actually stood up and said something loving and caring to others or out loud in the world i feel like that could be transformational and i think it is it is probably naive to say oh yoga can change the world but i actually think there's probably like a billion people practicing yoga i don't know hundreds of millions of people practicing yoga and it's like yeah. just think the potential there for transformation. So I just feel like all we need to do is do something nice for somebody else, be thoughtful and kind. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can, I think we can make real change that way. All right. Take it off of the cushion, off of the mat and into the world. That's great. Yeah. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Jeevana Heyman. He's the author of the book we've been discussing today, Yoga Revolution. And you can find out more about him at his website, jeevanaheyman.com, which will be a link to his website will be on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Jeevana, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me and your great questions, Laura. <laughs> yeah. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we offer daily meditation from 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning, from 4 to 4.30 p.m. every afternoon. These are Pacific times, by the way, and then on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. We also offer Sunday satsangs at 10 a.m. each week. Yogacharya O'Brien is currently offering a satsang series on the five elements. You can listen to the first four episodes of that on that's on earth, water, fire, and air by going to uh, ellengraceobrien.org. No, it's ellengraceobrien.com. Sunday, uh, June 12th, she will be completing that series of the five elements. Um, that's June 12th, 2022 on space. Discover unbounded delight, the freedom of wholeness. Um, learn more about Yogacharya O'Brien at her website, ellengraceobrien.com. Learn more about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment at csecenter.org. And you can join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'm going to, my guest will be Bill Burnett. He's executive director of the design program at Stanford. We'll be discussing how we can find more happiness and new freedom at work. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Subscribe to our podcast if you're listening, and if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>